All right, would you open up your Bibles, please, to uh, Genesis chapter 12. We are going to be covering, Lord willing, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, 16, and 17. (laughs) I'm so frustrated. I know. I'm skipping chapter 14 because it's just really exciting. It's the Dead Sea War. It's the first war ever in the whole of ancient literature that we have a record of. The very first war in the Bible and in all of ancient literature. And it so much matches up with the very last war in Scripture, which will be the Battle of Armageddon. It's even in the same location with the same kind of armies. I mean, the same people. So I wanted to dedicate. And then after that war is when Abram meets Abraham meets Melchizedek. So we're going to devote a whole lesson to chapter 14. But today I want to very quickly cover chapters 12 to 17. And uh, a lot in there. And that's why I said I'm frustrated because this is not a study of Genesis. And I, I would love to tell you every little detail of Abraham's life, but I did do that 20 years ago, and that's why I'm saying if you want all the details, go ahead and get either the MP3s or the CDs or whatever. Um, I myself am taking this one home because I can't remember what I said. I got so excited, <laughs> literally, I got so excited about something I learned last week as I was studying about Abraham. And I just, oh, I was having heartburn, and I was so excited. And then you know what I did? I read my own book. (laughs) And it was in there. (laughs) And I had already learned that, like, 20 years ago. (laughs) Isn't it wonderful to get old, and you can have spiritual heartburn over and over again as you relearn things you already know? Oh, well, anyway, that is a that's a deal. That's 24 messages for only $20. All right. Um, for 200 years after the Babel dispersion, that is what we discussed last time before, you know, we broke for all these holidays and snow days and everything. But uh, for 200 years after the Tower of Babel dispersion, do you know that scripture is absolutely silent on the matter of mankind's history? The various family groups with their now new distinct languages They migrated and they developed eventually, you know, into people groups and cultures and then the nations, the 70 nations that we discussed in chapter 10, and even into races, the different races. But the word of God is silent. Um, It speaks of no specific event, no specific person for two whole centuries. Why is that? Well, maybe because... Even after his judgment intervention at Babel, in which the Lord God gave man another new opportunity for a spiritual beginning, even after that, the world became increasingly polluted. As the false religious system that had originated in Babel spread its evil tentacles across the globe. And wherever there's false religion, there is usually moral corruption. They seemed to go hand in hand, so moral corruption abounded, and soon man's degeneracy was just about like it was before the flood. Sad, isn't it? And it even, that spiritual decline even affected the messianic line from Noah through Shem. And we know this because Abram's father, Terah, T-E-R-A-H, was an idol worshiper. So it even affected 
the Messianic line. So it was time for the Lord to initiate something new. Now, not new in his predetermined plan from eternity past, but something new in operation. He was going to move away from dealing with mankind as a whole, and he instead was going to prepare one special people to become his instruments of witness to all the other people. That people was going to develop into a nation, and he was going to use that one special nation to be a witness of him to all the other nations. And that special people would originate from a man originally named Abram, which means exalted father. Now, the first section of Genesis, there's really two main divisions of the book of beginnings, Genesis. There's chapters 1 to 11. We have now completed that. Those chapters covered about 2,000 years. And it's called primeval history. And those chapters covered four main subjects, which were all events. There was the event of creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Now we enter into the second main section of Genesis, which is called patriarchal history. And it covers only 350 years. And it goes from chapters 12 to the end of the book, chapter 52. A lot more chapters. Is that 39 chapters or something? (laughs) But only covers 350 years. And it, too, has four main subjects. Just like the first half, except the four main subjects are not events. They are people. Those people are the patriarchs. Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And just in those statistics right there, you see where God puts the emphasis? Does he put the emphasis on events? I mean, 2,000 years? And only 11 chapters? Or does he put the emphasis on people? It's always on people. So that's where it slows down when we start talking about people. Abram, exalted father. I did discover another trinity. Remember how we talked about so many trinities in creation? Well, there's a lot of trinities also in the scripture because, you know, it gives evidence of the author who is our triune God. But not only is Genesis divided into two main divisions, but it has three basic beginnings We have the beginning of the human race in Adam. Then there is the beginning of the post-Diluvian world, the post-flood world in Noah. And third of all, there is the beginning of the nation of Israel in Abram. That's interesting. Three, three again, Trinity. Also, the book of Genesis, basically, and you know, did you all get a map on the other side of your homework questions? The book of Genesis also takes place in three main countries. You have Babylon, that whole Mesopotamian area, and then the land of Canaan, which it was originally called, now it's called Israel, and then Egypt. So there's also three main countries, three main divisions, three countries. Well, about one-fourth of the book of beginnings is devoted to this man, Abraham. One-fourth, that's 25% of Genesis, is about Abraham. Did you know there are some 75 New Testament references to Abraham? 
which is more than any other Old Testament person, more than any other person except, no, not counting God. (laughs) Of course, he'd always win. Moses. Moses is mentioned more in the New Testament, but second place is Abraham. It's going to take us several lessons, at least, to, to look at his life. And I have to do this in big, sweeping movements. Cannot cover everything. But I am going to try to highlight those events that serve our typological study of Christ from the Old Testament. Since this lesson focuses today, this lesson focuses on the early spiritual journey of Abraham, this patriarch of Israel, before his name was actually changed to Abraham. I'm going to call him Abram. Now, I'll slip up and call him Abraham from time to time. But the title for our lesson is Abram and the Covenant. Because that's the two things we're going to talk about. His life before his name was changed from exalted father to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. And then we're going, to, we're going to talk about that. But then we're also going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant, which is very important. So the title for this lesson is Abram and the Covenant. He was not only a forefather of Christ. Of course, he's mentioned in both of the genealogical records of the Lord Jesus in Matthew and in Luke. But Abraham was the first patriarch of Israel and all believers... All believers, whether Jew or Gentile, all believers are called his children. It says in the New Testament that Abraham is the father of us all. We are all his spiritual children. Not physical descendants. Some of us are. (laughs) But we are his spiritual descendants. The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Abram and also then Abraham on a number of occasions. He spoke to him on a number of occasions. He is uniquely called the friend of God in James 2.23. Paul actually uses Abraham to demonstrate how a person is justified by faith alone, without works. And James uses Abraham to teach that true faith is demonstrated by works. Interesting. Hebrews chapter 11 gives more space to Abraham and Sarah than any other Hall of Faith recipient. If you look the verses from 8 to 19 in Hebrews 11 are about those two, Abraham, primarily Abraham, and of course his wife Sarah. Well, so when we consider the emphasis in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, on this man, it would seem highly likely that the resurrected Lord Jesus surely must have mentioned him in his unrecorded Emmaus Road sermon. Don't you think? I can't imagine that he would not have mentioned to those two disciples when he's explaining himself. They don't know who he is yet, but he's explaining how the Christ ought to have suffered and how Moses and the prophets all pointed to to him and everything he had just encountered three days earlier. Primarily, he surely must have mentioned 
Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac because that episode is probably the clearest Old Testament picture in type of the Lord's own Calvary sacrifice on that same mountain, you know, Mount Moriah. Don't you know he would have talked about that? And he may have explained, I'm sure he even talked a little bit about the Abrahamic covenant because it's important. It all points to him, to Christ. But he may have explained to those disciples how Abraham, who had lived 2,000 years before Jesus, before his incarnation, I should say, he may have explained how Abraham had rejoiced to see his day and saw it and was glad. Remember how Jesus, during his earthly ministry, had said that to the proud Jews, you know, the Pharisees. They were, they were so proud of being the descendants of Abraham. They thought that that's what was going to get them into heaven because they were Abraham of Abraham's seed. And then he made this comment. He said, well, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. <laughs> the one you're rejecting. He rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And he was glad. And they said, what? That's impossible. You're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham have seen your day? 50? He was only in his early 30s. He must have looked old for his age, right? <laughs> um, and then he really shocked them and made them mad because what did he say after that? Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, and they just ricocheted off the, the walls. <laughs> that was, by the way, in John eight fifty six. Did you know that Abraham came to understand the gospel? The death, burial, I don't know about the burial. Well, I guess that comes along with the death. But he understood about the death of the coming Christ and the resurrection. He was able to piece together, like a puzzle, the Lord's Abrahamic covenant promises to him that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed through his seed. He pieced that together with the mysterious way in which the Lord ratified the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 15, which we're going to look at this morning. That was the second piece of the puzzle. And then the third major piece of the puzzle was his own Mount Moriah experience with Isaac and the ram, the substitute. He put all that together, and he came to understand the gospel. Remember, when we looked at Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, and how the seed of the serpent was going to bruise the heel, and the, and the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent, we, we discussed how the gospel is not a New Testament phenomena. It has been there ever since the beginning. Well, I'm not just making it up that... Abraham came to understand the gospel. It actually tells us, Paul tells us, in Galatians 3.16, he says that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. When God told him that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in his seed, and then Paul goes on to explain how that word seed is singular because it speaks of whom? Of Christ, exactly. Did you know, and might surprise some of you to think about this too, did you know that Abraham actually preached what Jesus preached about how Moses and the prophets wrote about Christ? You know, that's what he's talking about on the Emmaus Road. 
Uh, Moses and the prophets, the whole Old Testament scripture spoke of him. Did you know Abraham preached that same truth? And he did it after he died? <laughs> what? Yesterday, there was a little baby in the room. It was a visitor, and she had her baby with her. And when I said, did you know he preached that after he died? Right at that moment, the baby said, what? <laughs> I am not kidding you. <laughs> it was so cute. It was so cute. <sighs> but from the paradise section of Hades, which is where all the righteous dead before the Lord's resurrection would go, um, after death, Abraham, remember this? He responded to a request, this is Luke 16, from a former rich man whose soul was in the torment side of Hades, which is called, was called um, hell. Hell is not the same as the lake of fire. Hell is where all the unrighteous dead are today, one day after the great white throne judgment, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. There are two different things. Well, there's, sec there's two sections of paradise. Well, the rich man called across that great gulf fixed over to Abraham in the paradise section, and he begged him to allow a former beggar named Lazarus, who used to, in this life, sat at his gate begging. He, now they switch positions. <laughs> because the beggar is now rich. He is rich. He's safe and secure in Abraham's bosom, which is another name for paradise, Abraham's bosom. See how much that man is honored, Abraham? Okay, so he's now rich, and the former rich man is poor. He's actually a beggar because he's begging Abraham to allow Lazarus to return from the dead. Interesting that there was a man named Lazarus who did return from the dead. And when he did, the religious authorities wanted to kill him. But he said, let Lazarus return from the dead and go and be a witness to my five living brothers so that they don't have to experience what I'm experiencing. And do you know what Abraham preached to him? Here's what he said. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Boy, that was a prophecy right there, wasn't it? That is amazing. You know, he lived and died long before Moses and the prophets, the other prophets. Abraham lived before there was one word of scripture written. So how in the afterlife can he be talking about Moses and the prophets? <laughs> Did you ever think about that? Some of you are saying, well, we can't take this literally because it's a parable. Well, there's never been a parable that used proper names. This one has two proper names, Lazarus and Abraham. And I could give you another example about how men in the afterlife know more than they, we think they might, should know. That's a southern expression. Might, should have, should know. <laughs> and that's when Moses and Elijah are on the Mount of Transfiguration and they're talking to Jesus before Calvary. They're talking to Jesus about his exodus, his decease. What this tells us is that the righteous dead know much. In fact, their knowledge is increased. 
Well, yeah, why wouldn't it be? I mean, they know a whole lot more about the Lord and his perfections and his grace and his purposes and his glory and his love and his justice, etc., etc., because they're with him. And they see him as he is. They know scripture, obviously. And uh, they know all its once hidden mysteries. They have firsthand knowledge of angels. Again, why wouldn't they? They're dwelling with the angels. They know about the joys and the glories of the heavenly state. In other words, they they know abundantly more in the afterlife than they did here. Sometimes people ask me, are we going to know each other in the next life? And I said, do you really think we're going to be more dumb up there than we are down here? You know what? We'll even remember each other's names. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Without name tags. No more name tags. (laughs) Well, Abram's original name, don't you know, Exalted Father, must have been very embarrassing for him, difficult for him to bear. Because even into his 70s and then even into his 80s, he had no children. Don't you know people talking behind his back and laughing? (laughs) Abram, exalted father, he doesn't even have a single kid. (laughs) Um, Why did he have no children? Because his wife, Sarai, which means my princess, that was her name before it was changed to Sarah, um, she was barren. It tells us that in chapter 11, verse 30. She was barren. Hebrews 11.12 actually tells us that Abraham himself was as good as dead. (laughs) That's exactly what it says, as good as dead. Now that's speaking about the fruitfulness realm of Abraham. And I got to thinking about those two terms, barren and dead. Don't they give us a perfect description of every believer before God breathes newness of life into him or her? at the time of salvation. Concerning spiritual life, aren't we dead before Christ? We're all spiritually dead. And concerning spiritual fruit, we're barren. We can produce, you know, worldly fruit, but not eternal spiritual fruit. So we're all, before Christ quickens us, we're all, we're all barren and dead. But when he quickens us, then we can bring forth much fruit as we abide on the vine, which is Christ. And uh, as Abraham's descendants, you know, we're to be as the dust of the earth, innumerable, and as the stars of the sky, we can bring forth much fruit for the Lord. Now, the expression, you know, he promised him innumerable descendants. And he said, as the dust of the earth... The stars of the sky, so basically he's saying, remember my promise to you, even when you're, <laughs> you have no kids, keep remembering, cling to this promise. Whether you look down or whether you look up, remember my promise. <clears throat> also, I think that there's a dual description of his descendants as earthly dust and heavenly stars because that refers to both his innumerable physical descendants earthly dust, his physical descendants, who are the Jews and the Arabs, and then his even more innumerable spiritual seed, heavenly seed, which are all believers. Now, there's a couple of you in here who are both. 
aren't you? Earthly and heavenly seed. So that's why he says, dust of the earth, stars of the sky. As with each of us, it was the Lord himself who took the initiative in calling Abram. Some people, when they give their testimonies, what do they say? They say, I found the Lord. No, you didn't. He found you. (laughs) He found you. It was another evidence of his grace that he called a man to become his the, the physical forefather of his own incarnation that the Lord called a man who had been an idol worshiper. That is amazing grace, isn't it? I think about our own call, each of us in this room, it's amazing grace. I, I just can't believe he called me. I wasn't an idol worshiper, but I was a long way from the truth. How do I know he was an idol worshiper? Because Joshua, Joshua, who was later speaking to Israel, he, he talked not only about Abraham's father, Terah, but about his sons, Abram and Nahor. Now, he had another son, Haran, but he had died by this time. But he said all of them, they worshipped other gods. And then he went on, Joshua went on to warn Israel to put away the gods their fathers Their patriarchs had served and serve only the Lord. That's in Joshua 24. The Talmud, the Jewish Talmud tells us that Terah, Abram's father, worshipped no less than 12 gods. Ur of the Chaldees was not too far from Babel, if you look at your map. And uh, they they were worshipping basically that trinity, the false trinity of Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz, except they had different names. They were worshiping uh, the sun god and the moon god and all the, the other gods and goddesses of astrology. They were, they were just big time into idolatry. Isn't it amazing that God called a man who was an idol worshiper to be the, the father of his, forefather of his own incarnation? That is truly amazing grace, amazing grace. He was also a Gentile. Now, I got to thinking about the three, three calls of the Lord on three very influential men in Scripture. You've got Abraham, Moses at the burning bush, and then Paul, who was Saul, on the road to Damascus. And the Lord took the initiative in each one of their lives, didn't he? And then I was comparing that, and I think this is one of your homework questions, and then I got to thinking about how interesting it is that all three of those very important men in scripture, in God's plan, all had connections with the Gentile world and the Jewish world because Abraham <laughs> was actually a Iraqi. Can you, I mean, this, where he came from is now Iraq. He was a Gentile, but he became the father of Israel. He, he in uh, chapter um, 14, he's called for the first time Abram the Hebrew. From him came the Hebrews, the Jewish people, from his seed. But he was originally a Gentile. Amazing. Well, of course he was. Everybody was a Gentile. There were no Jews yet. (laughs) Adam was a Gentile. All of them before that were Gentiles. But he had a connection, therefore, with the Gentile world and the Jewish world. And then you have Moses. Okay, where Moses was from the tribe of Levi. He was Jewish, both his mom and dad. He was Jewish. But where was he raised? Egypt. Moses was an Egyptian Jew. 
And he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And then you have Saul. Ah, oh, don't tell me. Saul has a connection with the Gentiles. <laughs> oh, yes, he does. Even though he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and he was a Pharisee, where was he raised? Where was he born? Modern-day Turkey. Tarsus of Cilicia, if you, if you look at your maps, wherever you have your maps. that's where. And he was a Roman citizen. Do you know that? He was a Roman Jew, a Turkish Roman Jew. <laughs> and he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So what does this show us? I'll tell you what it shows us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's always been about saving everybody. Everybody, Jew, Gentile. And it also shows us he is, he is um, no respecter of persons, right? He is an equal opportunity employer. <laughs> well, Abram's summons marked Israel's beginning as a nation. He lived almost exactly halfway between Adam, I should do this for you guys, Adam and, and Christ. Abraham is just about smack dab in the middle. Just like Israel is smack dab in the middle of the earth the land masses of the earth. She is the epicenter of God's redemptive plan. She is the epicenter of his purpose for world history. She's also the epicenter of the news every single day, isn't she? <laughs> and yet her importance in God's plan is nothing in which she can boast. Absolutely nothing that, you know, those Pharisees were so proud of. Isaiah reminded them in chapter 51 you guys have nothing in which to boast. God shows you. It's all of him. It's his grace. And uh, he said, he said this. He said, God is the one who reached down and pulled Abraham and Sarah out of the hole of the pit of idolatrous Ur. Those are Isaiah's words. The hole of the pit. God did that to build a family from which he God would build a nation and through whom he would bless all the nations of the earth from Abraham's seed, the Savior, would come. So you have nothing to boast about, just like you and I have nothing to boast about. We're witnessing to people, well, I'm saved. Sinner saved by grace, right? He Didn't he reach down into that pit of Ur or Sodom or Egypt or... Chicago, <laughs> all those are yeah, pictures of the world. Um, didn't he reach down into that, that horrible pit and that miry clay and pull us up, set our feet upon a rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and put a new song in our mouth, even praise unto our Lord? We have nothing in which to boast. It was It's all of him. Well, at some point, as Abram with his family, now his one brother, Haran, had died. Haran had a son named Lot. He had died, but some point after that brother died, Stephen, in his one and only sermon, powerful sermon, of Acts chapter 7, verse 2, tells us that the God of glory appeared to Abram, the idol worshiper. And he told him, he gave him a command. He said, he was to leave Ur and his family, and he was to step out by faith, not knowing where he was going, to a land that he would be shown. He was to separate from everything pertaining to his old life. 
By leaving his land, he would be renouncing his identification with nations that had rebelled against the knowledge of the true God. Now, even though Abraham became a great man of faith, no one doubts that, yet he wasn't perfect. Has any man besides the Lord Jesus ever been perfect? Abraham made a lot of mistakes. In fact, his first step of faith (laughs) started out with a compromise. He didn't leave his entire family, as he had been told. For whatever reason, and you can read lots of reasons, but who went with him besides his wife? Now, he was supposed to take Sarah. Sarah, by the way, was his half-sister. Yes, she was. Um, But who else went with him? Lot and someone else, his father, Terah, went with him. And uh, taking them was not, not going to turn out to be good. Number one, his father, and remember, every, they're patriarchal families. You know, families very tight in that day and still are in the Middle East. But his father decided to remain in Haran. Now, if you look at your maps, they, they went all the way from Ur, way up here uh, past Syria up into the Turkey area really of modern day Turkey to Haran Haran was it's confusing because he had a brother Lot's dad was named Haran and then there's a city named Haran you know what Haran actually means delay (laughs) well the father decided to delay in delay and we think or Bible commentators say that they were delayed there at least five years it could have been more But Abram stayed there for five years until his father died. And he probably still would have been in Haran if the Lord had not again taken the initiative and given him a second divine summons. And in this one, we read it in Genesis 12, 1. God appears to him or says to him. It doesn't say he appeared to him, but he spoke to him. And what does he say? Get thee out. You have wasted enough time in Haran. It's time to leave. Get out of there. And then he follows that command with the initial promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And those initial promises are in verses 2 and 3, but the Abrahamic covenant is spread over a bunch of uh, chapters. He gives it in little pieces, okay? But it starts out in verses 2 and 3. But I'm going to return to that subject later. I want to continue on with our story right now. So second divine command. And this time, Abram is no longer committed to his earthly father. So he steps out. He's going to be committed to his heavenly father. And he leaves Haran. But now is when he takes Lot with him. Again, I think since Lot's father died, Abraham is kind of his father. He takes over and he doesn't have any kids of his own, so, <clears throat> so he takes his nephew to ma- make his way to the land that God would show him. Now, you see the land, he's up in Haran. How did he know where to go? Why didn't he go to Saudi Arabia straight down? Why didn't he go over to Turkey? Why didn't he go to Syria or, you know, the, the modern, the, the old names of those places? How did he know where to go? As the Lord said, I will show you. I don't know how he knew. I wondered if, just like his descendants years later, uh, maybe the Lord didn't lead him as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. What do you think? (laughs) I don't know. But somehow he led him to the land of Canaan. 
And when he arrived there, he began a process whereby he traveled the whole length of the land. And as he looked it over and saw the choicest locations of that land were possessed by wicked people. Just read a little bit about the Canaanites. If you thought they were wicked in Ur, they were even more wicked over in Canaan. And he surely must have wondered, why in the world has he, has he moved me here? I could have just stayed where I was <laughs> instead of coming all this distance. How is this land any better than idolatrous Ur? Well, he didn't question God, you know, and he didn't, he didn't try to inter- intermarry with the Canaanites like Solomon would later do. He just accepted it, stayed there. And his first stop was at a place called Shoulder, Sikkim or Shikkim. And that's in verse 7. And there the Lord appeared to him again. Okay, now this is his second Christophany. This is the second visible appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ to him. The Lord, now that he's actually in the land, the Lord appears to him. You know, the whole time that he was in Haran delaying, he didn't hear from the the Lord, except at the end when he said, get out of here. And when we, when we look at the rest of his life, we find that when he was in Iran, he never built an altar. What does that tell you? He was out of the will of the Lord, wasn't he? But now that he's in the land, <clears throat> first thing he does is he builds an altar in Shechem. He's leaning on the shoulder of the Lord. That's what that name means. And then again, between Bethel and Hai, he builds an altar to worship God. That's in verse 8. Shortly after, I don't know how many years later, but shortly thereafter, if you look at verse 10, there was a famine in the land. And rather than trusting on the Lord to supply his needs, what does Abram do? Well, he goes down to Egypt. There's so much of his life that's like his descendants. You know, Israel also had a famine in the land. They went to Egypt. Now, they were supposed to go to Egypt because God had prepared the way with Joseph. Here, there's no word from the Lord No pillar of cloud to lead him into Egypt. And when he's in Egypt, he makes some serious mistakes. So we know he's out of the will of the Lord when he does this. He goes down to Egypt. And when he's there, he lies about his marital relationship with Sarah. And he does so in order to protect himself. Now, this is amazing. I don't know what kind of night cream this woman used. But I sure would like to get some of it. Because she is now, all right, when he left Haran, Abraham was 75 years old. Sarah was 10 years his younger, his junior. Thank you. (laughs) So she was 65. Now, they've been in the land for a while before the famine. So she is somewhere between 65 and 70. And she is so drop-dead gorgeous. It says she's very fair. History says that there were three outstandingly gorgeous women in the Old Testament. Obviously, the first one was Eve. Second one, they say, was Sarah and then Esther. Well, she was so beautiful, 65 to 70, that he was afraid that Pharaoh's men would see her beauty and take her to put her in Pharaoh's harem and kill him as her husband. Get rid of him. So he says, lie and tell everybody that you're my sister. Well, that was a half-truth, but a half-truth is still a lie. And 
That was really dumb. I mean, not only is he selfishly protecting himself, he thinks he's protecting and putting her in harm's way, but Pharaoh turns out to be a pretty decent guy. And he says, you know, when he finds out the truth, he says, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? I wouldn't have taken her. But because she's your sister, okay, let's take her. (laughs) Oh, dumb. Anyway, uh, so they take her and uh, put her in, in the harem. And guess what? There's no altar built when he's in Egypt. Fortunately, the Lord kept his promise of protection. Look back at verse 3. This is part of the covenant. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Well, the Lord had to step in to protect uh, the ones through whom his son was going to come. And so he sends great plagues on Pharaoh. Poor Pharaoh. wasn't even his fault. You know, it was, it was because of Abraham's lie. But plagues on Pharaoh and his whole household. Again, it reminds me of um, the Israelites in, in Egypt when God had to send great plagues so that Pharaoh would let his people go. <laughs> well, this Pharaoh also let his people go. He, he wanted to get rid of Abraham. He gave her back. He gave him uh, Sarah. And he says, get out of here. And in order to get rid of him, he loads him up with all kinds of goodies. They did that with the Israelites too, loaded them up, said, get out of here. Only difference is Pharaoh chased after them, (laughs) changed his mind. But here Pharaoh doesn't. He's just glad to get them out of his harem. That's a joke. Um, So anyway, he loads them up and they, they leave Egypt extremely more wealthy, much more wealthy than when they went into Egypt. Abraham left a little richer and a little bit wiser, not enough wiser. You know what he does later on in chapter 20? Same old thing. He commits the same lie. Tell Sarah, and I don't know why she did it the second time. She said, don't you remember what happened the first time? <laughs> I'm in there with all those young chicks, you know, in that era. <laughs> she was a submissive wife. All right, okay. So he does the same thing, and she's taken again, and that's many, many years later. Think how old she was then. And, and she was still so beautiful, they took her. Wow. That was uh, Abimelech took her. Well, at least, however, when Abram left Egypt, there was no place for Egypt in his heart. (laughs) That was good. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case for Lot. His nephew also had gone to Egypt with him and also left Egypt in greatly increased in goods. But though he physically left Egypt, Egypt was still in his heart. And from thenceforth, Lot makes the serious error of using materialism as his guide. You know, when God calls us to get out, and we're the called out ones, that's, an, that's what ecclesia, the church means, called out ones. And he tells us to separate from the world, to be a witness to the world, but to separate ourselves from it. A lot of people have tr- trouble with that separation business, don't they? And like to take a lot of baggage with them. When, when Abram left Ur, he took some baggage that turned out to be not so good. He took his father and he took his nephew. That was baggage from the world. When they left Egypt, they also took some baggage they shouldn't have taken. When Pharaoh loaded them up with all those goodies, he also loaded them up with men servants and maidservants. You know what Abraham rightly should have done? He should have said, no, this was my mistake. You keep all your goods. I am so sorry. Forgive me. He was supposed to be a witness to the pagans. And here Pharaoh had more integrity than he did. He should have said, keep all that stuff. And he should have left. 
as he went into the land, but instead he took all those goods. That resulted in strife between him and Lot. And then one of the maidservants was a woman named Hagar, a girl named Hagar. That baggage turned out to be really troublesome. We're still facing the the problem from, from that one. Anyway, so strife rises, arises between the herdsmen of Lot. Now they have so many cattle and sheep and everything that there's not enough grazing land when they go back to Canaan, and they have strife between their herdsmen. And Abraham, understanding that the things uniting them as brothers is more important than the things dividing them, he graciously allows Lot the first choice of land. Now Lot, as the junior should have deferred to his uncle, the elder, and his benefactor. And he should have said, that's very nice of you, uncle, but no, you go ahead. You take the first choice of land. But Lot didn't do that. He's selfish. He's full of materialists, you know, the, the world. Lot was a man of the world. And what did he do? He went ahead and took first choice. He fixed his eyes on the plain of Jordan, which was in the direction of two really bad cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Next thing we read in chapter 13, verse 12, he's pitching his tent toward Sodom. And then soon thereafter, if you look at chapter 14, verse 12, where is he actually living? Not just outside of Sodom, but he's dwelling in Sodom. Then if you look at chapter 19, verse 1, he's even one of the magistrates of the city of Sodom. And his, his, at least two of his daughters have married Sodomite men. Sad. With each downward step, Lot grew weaker and weaker in his stand against temptation. And eventually, he lost all of his material possessions when Sodom was destroyed by the Lord. He also lost his wife. What happened to her? Pillar of salt. What happened to his children? He lost all of his children except two unmarried daughters. And that didn't turn out to be too great. Uh, he even lost his peace, peace of uh, soul. And what little integrity he had. The last we ever read of Lot, what's he, he's living in a cave with nothing except those two unmarried daughters. They get him drunk and have incest with him. That's about as low as you can get. And from them came Israel, some of Israel's terrible enemies, the uh, Moabites and the Ammonites, from his incestuous relationship with his own daughters. The only thing Lot didn't lose, and this surprised people when they found out, only thing he didn't lose was his salvation. What? Lot was saved? You're kidding me. Do you know that the Old Testament people didn't know Lot was saved until Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit in his second epistle to say that Lot was a just man, a righteous man, and it vexed his soul as he lived in Sodom, you know, to see what was going on? Well, why didn't you get out of there, Lot? (laughs) Isn't it surprising? That Lot was a saved man. Man, if he could be saved, what does that tell us? Anybody be saved. Well, when the Lord is drawing us to himself, there's no telling what kind of challenges he's going to bring into our lives. One day, as with Abram, he might ask us to step out into unfamiliar territory. Has he ever done that with you? He did to me. Get thee out of Chicago, Catherine. Go down to a land I will show you that you've never heard of before, where they speak a different language. (laughs) But the good news is they worship the true God down there. Ah, the Bible Belt. Yes, thank you, Lord. Um, and leave your family. Well, I, I had to do that, too. I know some of you can identify. Um, 
that, you know, if you look through Abraham's life, he really is a picture of all of us. He's the father of us all, and he gives us a picture of all the different tests that we go through in life. He had test after test after test after test, and every one of them can start with an F, the letter F. It's just amazing. <laughs> but this was the forsaking test. He didn't do too good with that, did he? He maybe got a C because he didn't forsake all. And then um, the Lord might have you face some kind of a famine test. Did Abraham pass that one? Nope. He didn't trust the Lord in that famine test. Now, famine test could be like a financial test or all different kinds of famine tests. Or a falsehood test. He didn't pass that one based on his own self-centered motives. We might find ourselves in the midst of strife with a relative. Uh Uh-oh. The family test. Hmm. And that happened to Abraham, too, concerning Lot, didn't it? And then he also faced the fellowship test. He could have broken fellowship with Lot, but he didn't. He forgave him. He passed the forgiveness test. We might find ourselves confronted with the responsibility even of restoring a brother or a sister who has fallen prisoner to the enemy. That happened to Lot. When this coalition from Iraq and Iran under Ketulamur, the four, four kings came down, swooped down, and, and took him, took all the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah captive, and they took Lot. Well, that was a test for Abraham. Uh, was he going to pass the fear test? You know he only had 318 soldiers, and they were his own servants. <laughs> they weren't really mighty soldiers. Were, were 318 going to go against this huge coalition of mighty men kings and and it was like a david and goliath thing it it was a fearful thing but he passed the fear test and he passed the fight test because he went to the rescue of his nephew and got him and won it's an amazing victory all these tests of faith and there's more um were just in the early years of his spiritual adventure but each one of those tests was used to draw him closer and closer to the lord and build up his faith for the biggest test of all, when he was asked to sacrifice his only beloved son, dearly beloved son. But he also had lapses, as we just saw, lapses of faith, particularly the worst one was with regard to the situation with Hagar and Ishmael. They served to teach us the folly of attempting to take matters into our own hands rather than trusting the Lord. God had promised Abram a son. But after waiting for about 10 years, and you can identify with this, I think, Sarai, who is now at least 75, gets impatient. And Abram makes the mistake of hearkening unto her, it says. Thinking that the ends would justify the means, they use Hagar, baggage brought from Egypt, her Egyptian handmaid, as a surrogate to bring them the promised son. Well, they were wrong not only about the means, they were wrong about the end. You know, instead of trusting the Lord in faith, they used the means of the flesh. That was wrong. And the end was wrong because Ishmael was not the son of promise, was he? He's not the son of faith. He was the son of, of the bondwoman, not the free woman, the bondwoman, the Egyptian woman. He was the son of flesh. And uh, so he was not the promised son, and severe, severe consequences followed. First of all, 
there was strife between Sarah and Hagar, and then years later, there was strife between Ishmael and Isaac, when Isaac was just a little guy, and Ishmael starts picking on him. And then even after the two half-brothers die, Ishmael's descendants became enemies of the Israelites. And is that not a conflict that continues to this day with Israel and her Arab neighbors? Most of Ishmael's descendants founded the Arab nations. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was a descendant of um, Kedar, who was uh, Ishmael's second son. So you see... (laughs) See all the the trouble that doing things in our own will, my own flesh, can cause not only us, but those around us and people for centuries and centuries and centuries. Well, at this point, let's turn to look at the Lord's covenant promises to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, let's just read the the beginning of it in in verses 2 and 3. I will make, this is God making the promises. This is an unconditional promise. You'll notice no if clauses. I will do this for you, Abraham, if you do this. There are no if clauses. This is God making an unconditional promise. He says, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's the initial beginning of this covenant. The main features of it, well, not only, by the way, is it unconditional, it's also to be taken literally. It is a literal covenant. A lot of people will say, no, you can take it figuratively. When he promises them the land, he's actually speaking about heaven. No, he isn't. He even spells out the dimensions of the land. So it's unconditional, it's eternal, and it's literal. Main features are the promise of land, the promise of seed, and the promise of blessings, the promise of land. He says, I'll, I'll you know, go to a land. I'm actually going to give this land to your seed. He says in verse uh, chapter 13, I'm going to give it to your seed forever. In chapter 15, that's where he spells out the specific territory. He's gonna, it's going to be from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. That is from the Nile to the Euphrates. That's just east and west. Then it goes, you know, north and south, too, all the way up past Lebanon, down to the Med, the Mediterranean. That proves it's literal, right? That's not heaven. (laughs) That sure isn't heaven. The promise of the land occurs 150 times in the scripture. You think God is serious about this land thing? And it's expanded upon, it's amplified in what is called the land covenant, In Deuteronomy 29 and 30, that is not the Palestinian covenant. Do you know, and I'm giving you an appendix. I want you to read it in your lesson, an appendix about the word Palestine. Israel was never, ever called Palestine in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. It was Canaan. Palestine is pure propaganda. I turned the news on this morning, and they were talking about uh, the new embassy in Jerusalem of Palestine. I thought, there you go. If you look at your maps in the back of your Bible, they've all got Palestine. Palestine is a Latinized term for the Philistines, the enemies of of Israel. And uh, the Philistines weren't even Arab. They came from Europe. It's just all messed up. 
And it's today, in the past it might not have made a big difference, but today it's all used as propaganda. It's anti-Israel. It's anti-Semitic. So don't, let's, let's, and I know in some of my books I probably used it because most commentaries use Palestine. Un- unbelievable. Anyway, don't use it. Um, when Christ returns, that will be the only time that Israel will finally possess all the land that God promised her. She possesses very little of that land today, does she? But one day she will. She will not only possess the land that the Palestinians do occupy today in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, but she's going to possess some of Egypt. She's going to possess some of Syria, all of Jordan, some of Saudi Arabia, and Iraq in the Millennial Kingdom. She only possesses a fraction of that, and they're always trying to divide, you know, not even as big as New Jersey, and they're always trying to take more and more away from her. That's not being on the right side of the equation because God says, I will curse those that curse you. Promise of seed. He tells him he's going to make him a great nation. Israel became a great nation under King Solomon, but that wasn't anything (laughs) compared to the great nation she's going to be when Jesus returns and sets up his headquarters there. He also says that he would be a father of many nations, and from Ishmael came many other nations. He says kings would come from him, and this is over in chapter 17. This king part of the Abrahamic covenant is amplified in the Davidic covenant. You see, one covenant, you know, this progressive revelation builds upon the others, the Edenic covenant, and then the um, Noahic and the Abrahamic and the Mosaic. They all build on top of each other. So this this seed part, the king part, is amplified in the Davidic covenant. From David, of course, would come the eternal king of kings. Then there's a promise of blessings, three types of blessings, personal, national, universal. Personal was that God promised to make Abraham a great name. Has Abraham become a great name? Absolutely. I don't know how many Jews and Christians and even Arabs um, have named their sons Abraham. And I couldn't help but contrast with that with Nimrod <laughs> and the citizens of Babel who wanted to make a name for themselves. How many Nimrods do you know? Anybody? Uh, and the only name the citizens of Babel made for themselves is the, the name Confusion. You know what the lesson of that story is? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God blessed Abraham in other ways besides a great name. He prospered in uh, in, lives, in, in his business, in livestock. Uh, he prospered in his family, eventually, in victory, in battle, that we'll see next time, and in his faith. National blessings. God says he's going to make him a great nation, and that nation transfers to, um, uh, no, that, I already talked about that. That's the national, but universal. It tra- translates to universal blessings because from that one nation would come the Savior who would, bless every family on earth you know it says in revelation that the redeemed come from every tongue tribe race nation etc all the families of the earth have been blessed because of this the savior the the personal blessings the universal part are amplified in what is called the new covenant all right that was fast but you read your notes when you get home what i want <laughs> what i want to say now is that um All right, he hears all these wonderful promises, but the problem is that he still doesn't have any children. So after many years, and he still has no child, he raises a question to the Lord. He got to thinking, you know, on his way down from Haran to Canaan, he passed through, if you'll notice, Damascus. 
And when he was in Damascus, he picked up this guy named Eliezer, who turned out to be wonderful, very faithful, great servant. And he gets to thinking, maybe, maybe he is going to be the one that, the, that will inherit the promises from him. You know, instead of his own seed, maybe it will be Eliezer of Damascus. This is in chapter 15, verse 2. And so he asked that of the Lord. And this, at this time, the Lord made it very specific to Abraham. No, it's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be a son from your own loins, your own seed. That's in chapter 15, verse 4. And with that news, let's look at verse 6. 15, 6. What does it say? And he, who's the he? Abram. And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. What? Do you know what that means? That means that he got saved in our vernacular. That is when he got saved. Now think about that for a minute. That means that everything we have been talking about, just about, from chapters 12 and 13 and 14, was done as an unsaved man. Abram was not saved in chapter 15, verse 6. Yes, he took an initial step of faith, When he left Ur, he took another step of faith when he left Haran. Now, if I had asked you before we came and started this class, if I had asked you, when do you think Abraham was saved? How many of you would have said he was saved when he left Ur of the Chaldees and left his idol worship? That's what I would have said. But that isn't isn't the case. He was on what we could call a, a religious pilgrimage. Those all, everything we've been talking about were the beginning footsteps of seeking faith. He had lots of good works, didn't he? This made me do a serious self-examination. He had a lot of good works. He obeyed God. He even called upon God. He built altars to God. You know, he went to church. He tithed. You know, when he met Melchizedek and tithed to the Lord through Melchizedek, he wasn't saved. Can you tithe and not be saved? Oh, yeah, of course. He even enjoyed the Lord's protection when the Lord intervened there in Egypt. He even won an amazing victory in battle. But none of that saved him. We shouldn't think that just because a person looks like, talks like, quacks like, (laughs) acts like a Christian, does that mean that he or she is a Christian? No, Matthew 7, you know, many will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I tithe? Didn't I win that victory? Didn't I do? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, to this point, his faith was intellectual faith. But now it becomes personal. It becomes saving heart faith. Because he genuinely believed, for the first time, he genuinely believed that God had the absolute power to keep his promises. Romans 4 tells us, it says that Abraham was, quote, fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he was able to perform, and therefore it was imputed unto him as righteousness. That's Romans 4, 21 and 22. 
But there was a specific promise, a very specific promise that Abraham became fully persuaded about. And it was the promise concerning the seed, singular, which is Christ, Galatians 3.16. Abram was counted righteous because his faith was now genuinely in God's word about the promised seed, the coming Savior. You know, it's always been faith. True saving faith is not just about God. It's about the promise of Christ, the Savior, whether it's before the cross or after the cross. Abraham wasn't saved by the law, was he? Because he was before the law. Was he saved by being circumcised? Like some people think they'll be saved if they're baptized. Was he? No, because he isn't, say, he isn't circumcised for another 14 years after this. In chapter 17, was he saved by any of his good works when he went and ra- rescued Lot? No, he was saved because for, for the first time in his life, the light bulb went on and he fully believed in the power of the Lord to fulfill his promise regarding a miracle-born son, Savior, the seed of the woman. And he would do that through giving him a miracle-born son from his own seed. You see what he was doing? He was rejoicing because he saw Christ's day, didn't he? He put it all together. Well, I want to just close with this. We've got to talk about this. The Lord ratifies the covenant. Soon after this, another couple verses, he, he tells Abram to do something that is gruesomely bloody. But it's also, at the very same time, a beautiful picture of what it was going to cost him, the Lord, to keep his covenant promises to Abraham. What was it going to cost him? Blood and death. He was going to ratify, seal his covenant promises. So he tells Abram to bring forth a heifer, a she-goat, and a ram, and then two birds, a turtle dove and a pigeon, a young pigeon. Now, those five creatures were to be slain, killed, and then the animals cut in half. The birds were too small to cut in half, but he was to put half of the, um, the, uh, the heifer on one side and the other half on another and form a, two parallel lines with the, the, the slain cut animals and then put the turtle dove on one side and the young pigeon on the other and, you know, make these two rows of the slain animals so that the blood would drain between them and make what is called a blood path, a pool of blood between them. That was a common way. I think it's a lot better to just shake hands if you're going to make an agreement. But um, this was the ancient way in which two parties swore, swore to a mutual agreement. Each party would then walk one by one individually through the bodies of the slain animals as a way to declare a self-imposed curse should he break that promise, should he break that pledge. Essentially, each party was saying, as these animals, may I likewise be cut in half (laughs) if I don't keep my side of this agreement. This is where cutting an agreement, that expression came from, cutting an agreement. Well, in this case, because the whole procedure pictured the time when Christ would actually literally ratify all of his unconditional 
covenant promises with mankind by shedding his own blood and giving his own life being cut off because that ratification would be a work he would accomplish completely by himself. Abram did not participate in this. Normally both sides would. But Abram, we are told, was put or he fell into a deep sleep. Look at verse 12. I'm in chapter 15. Did I tell you that? Chapter 15, verse 12. Abram's in a deep sleep. Now, the age of the three animals was three years. Each of the animals brought to be slain was to be three years old because like Christ, they were in the prime of their lives when they were suddenly cut off. Also, some say that their age signifies the years of the Lord's earthly ministry before he was cut off. The heifer, or that's either the heifer of a cow or an ox, symbolizes Christ's steadfast strength, like an ox has strength. The she-goat symbolizes refreshment for the soul that Christ alone can give. And the ram is a picture of his power in warfare. And when he went to the cross, he was in spiritual warfare. The turtle dove, the young pigeon, those are birds which both speak of gentleness and grace, qualities in which Christ abounds. There was a total of five sacrificed animals, the biblical number for grace. Calvary was not only about justice and blood and the fulfillment or the ratification of all God's covenant promises, but it was also about grace, wasn't it? Amazing grace. Well, after preparing the animals, Abram spent the rest of the day chasing away vultures and other birds of prey that wanted to swoop down and eat the carcasses. That's in verses 10 and 11. Then when the sun was going down, it says Abram fell into that deep sleep. And when he fell into that deep sleep, we're told in verse 12, that a mighty sense of dreadful horror of great darkness came upon him. It was like an ultimate nightmare. And he then received a revelation that his yet non-existent descendants, you know, good news, you're going to have descendants like the stars of the sky, bad news. <laughs> They're going to be strangers in the land. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to even be slave, enslaved for 400 years. That's bad news, isn't it? So he gets that revelation. And then verse 17, when the sun has fully set, it's completely dark, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp pass through the midst of those bloody pieces. Now, what in the world is that? What is that? Well, very likely it was what Moses saw later from a burning bush that did not consume. It was likely what the Israelites saw at the foot of Mount Sinai on the mountain that was, you know, covered, fire wrapped in smoke. And what they again saw in the wilderness as they were led around by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, it was the visible manifestation of God in the person of his son. What was it? The Shekinah glory of the Lord. He alone walked that bloody path to confirm his covenant promises to Abraham and his yet unborn seed. 
We know it was the Lord because Hebrews chapter 6 tells us it was the Lord. Now, this was not only the Lord's ratification of his covenant promises. It was a prophetic picture of the day that he himself would walk another bloody path. However, that path would not be stained with the blood of animals, would it? That path would be stained with his own human but sinless blood. And were there plenty of vultures that day? Oh, yeah. Human vultures and demonic vultures swooping down. Ha, if you be that Christ, get yourself down from there. Mocking him. Vultures everywhere that day. Was there a great darkness? Remember, Abram had this horror of great darkness that he sensed? Well, for three hours, as the Lord hung on that cross, there was an eerie darkness as the one who is both the smoking furnace of divine justice and the burning lamp of divine truth literally became the curse of sin for you and I. So that from that mighty work, grace and mercy could freely flow on all of us. Well, the Lord later gave him, you know, with every covenant, he gave a sign. And the sign was to remember, was a picture to remember the promise. What did he get? What was the sign he gave after the Edenic covenant about the serpent and the seed of the woman? He gave, the sign of that was the sign um, of the defeated serpent, you know, cursed above all the animals and crawling on its belly and eating the dust of the earth. Every time we see a snake, we're reminded of the Edenic covenant, you know, that victory over sin and death is coming, and it has come, by the seed of the woman. What sign did he give Noah that he would never again destroy the earth by a flood? You all know this one. Absolutely, the rainbow. Now to Abraham, what sign does he give Abraham? It's 14 years later, but he gives it to him 14 years later. It's the sign of circumcision. Now that would be a sign that he would see every single day, a sign on his own flesh and, the, and all his male descendants. It was to remind them that they are the covenant people, also to um, remind them of the promised son to come through the physical seed of Abraham. Christ would be cut off, so he would, he would die, so that believers in him would forever be cut off from sin and death. Now, there are two signs given in the Mosaic Covenant. We haven't gotten there yet, but I just want to test you, see if anybody knows what the two signs, two signs of Mosaic Covenant. Anybody want to guess? The Lamb, remember the night of the Exodus? The Lamb and the Law. The Lamb reveals God's provision, the Lamb of God, for those who cannot keep the law. What was the sign of the Davidic covenant? Crown. A crown is the sign of the Davidic covenant because it's a reminder that from David would come the everlasting king. And then there's the new covenant. Now, you all know this, again, is a dual, dual sign, two signs of the new covenant. Every time we take communion... Okay, what are the two signs of the new covenant? The bread and the wine to remind us that he was broken for us and shed his blood for us. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you 
There's not enough words of praise to thank you for reaching down into that horrible pit and the miry clay of this world, this Babel, this Ur of the Chaldees, this Egypt, this Sodom and Gomorrah that we live in, reaching down to each one of us and pulling us up out of that pit and putting our feet upon a rock, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and putting a new song in our mouths, even praise unto you, our God, who keeps all of his promises. How we love you, how we thank you for Jesus walking that bloody path for us. And we ask that you would use us in the next two weeks to truly be your witnesses for your glory. And may we lead people to a saving knowledge of you until we meet again. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you.